I have a handout to give you, however, I'm thinking I'm probably going to give that at the end uh, because otherwise you'll just look at it because I didn't give you blanks, I gave you all the answers. So you'll just sit there and look at it. So, but I do have a handout for you to take before we leave. Uh, does anybody want note-taking paper? Do you, does everybody have paper? You need some? I have some. I have some. If you want to pass it around to those who need it. Yeah, I just, I thought that as, as I'm going, some may want to, even though I'm going to give you a handout, uh, some of you may want to be taking notes as you go along. The book is not critical uh, because I'm going to be going through the book, but if you would like me to order that for you, uh, Jeff, would you say one of those papers... Uh, maybe have it at the back on a table or something so people can sign up. It is uh, $12.99. It's called The Church by Mark Dever. Uh, Are you acquainted with Mark Dever, any of you? Okay. Capitol Hills Baptist in uh, D.C. And he is over, it's called Nine Marks Ministry. And that name, Nine Marks, will become clear before the evening finishes. You'll, you'll understand that tonight, too. But uh, he's a frequent speaker around the country at conferences, a frequent speaker at Southeastern Seminary, our, one of our six Southern Baptist seminaries at Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, Southeastern hosts a Nine Marks conference uh, each year. And then at the Southern Baptist Convention, wherever the Southern Baptist Convention is in the nation uh, in June, because we move around to different major cities, there's a a Nine Marks conference at the convention also. Uh, He did his Ph.D. at Cambridge in England, and uh, he did it specifically in the area of the church. And I'll give you the official name of that tonight, what that's known as, the doctrine of the church. But anyway, he, he did his Ph.D. work uh, specifically in this subject matter. So uh, if you do want this book, it's about a hundred and, let's see, well, it, it's not a very long book, 166 pages, uh, paperback, pretty good size print. It's not a, not a terribly long read. So again, where, uh, Jeff, where did that paper get to? It's on the Welcome Center, okay? So if you would like me to order you a copy of that, I will do that uh, this week and have them put a rush on it. So uh, anyway, just uh, make sure you sign that. Now, I will say this. Next week's going to be a little different, and here's why. I'm going to have them show some videos on this. Because the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Soon as we say the final amen tonight, uh, Connie and I are taking a week's vacation. We're heading down. We're driving tonight to Biloxi, Mississippi. 
So we're heading out tonight after church. And we're going to try to make at least Auburn, Alabama tonight. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, and we are, we are coming back next Sunday. And so next Sunday night, I hate to do it that way. It's just the way vacation and discipleship training landed. But I won't be back next Sunday night. We'll be probably 10 o'clock getting back next Sunday night. So there'll be, all this will be on video. Okay? All this will be on video uh, next week. So anyway, um, but I'll put a rush on those uh, tomorrow if you would like a copy of that. Let's see. Let's get started. Somebody lead us in prayer. Who would do that? Somebody lead us. Dave? Amen. The doctrine of the church. Find uh, Matthew 16, if you would please. Matthew 16. Can everybody see the screen okay tonight? Okay. Matthew 16, when G, uh, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone... That he was the Christ. What did Christ say he would build? He'd build his church. Now, in theology, the doctrine of the church is known as what? Ecclesiology. And those who came in uh, just a moment ago, I will be giving you a handout of all this later tonight upon leaving. Since... I gave the answers on this. I didn't want you to just get the hand, get the hand out and get up and leave. Okay? Um, so anyway, and plus when we talk about Wayne Gruden's list and uh, Nine Mark's list, I, I just didn't, I wanted you to discuss that a little bit tonight instead of just having the answers. But ecclesiology... Uh, now, when we talk about theology, 
Uh, theology proper is the doctrine of the study of God. It's a combination word, uh, theos and logia, which means utterances about God. Utterances or sayings about God. So theology, theology proper is the study of God. Now underneath theology, you have different categories. Okay? Christology would be the study of what? The person and work of Christ. Pneumatology would be what? The study of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Bibliology would be, of course, the doctrine of the Bible. Eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Uh, Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So underneath, theology is the big category. Then underneath theology, you have the different categories. And this is the one specifically related to the doctrine of the church. It is a broad category. What do, you, what do you think ecclesiology includes? Okay, origin of the church. What else? Makeup of the church. The message of the church. The role of the church, we could say the, the mission of the church or the ministry of the church. Okay? What's another big one? The leadership of the church. So ecclesiology involves all of that. The nature and makeup of the church, whether it's the leadership, the message, the mission, uh, the people... All of that's involved in ecclesiology. And so in that regard, you can see that ecclesiology is a pretty broad category, isn't it? And we're going to be talking about those different elements uh, of this over these uh, weeks that we're going to be meeting together. Okay? Dr. Wayne Gruden says... The church, he defines the church as the community of all true believers for all time. It's a very simplistic definition, but a very good definition. The church, he says, is the community of all true believers for all time. You know, an essential part of Christ's work is to gather together a people for himself who will be his possession in the world and who will bear witness to a lost and dying world of his saving grace. God's purpose, it's it's very clear in the scripture, God's purpose is not simply to display his glory through individuals. But his purpose is to display his glory through a people. In America, we don't do very good at this because we are so lone ranger. We're all about the individual, aren't we? We're all about the individual, 
not just in America, in the West in general. We're about the individual. But folks, when you come to the scripture, you see that it's not simply about the individual. It is about a corporate body. So much so that the New Testament says you are living in direct disobedience to God if you're a professing believer who is not a part of a local body of believers. Hebrews 10 gives a command that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but we are to meet together and stir one another up to love and good deeds and all the more as we see the day approaching. So it is, it is direct disobedience to God. If somebody just writes off the church, if they claim to be a believer and they just write off the church, you can't do that. Not in living in obedience to the Lord. Because again, the Lord's purpose is what? To work out His purposes and display His glory in a corporate body. Not just in individuals. Also, what did Christ say that He would build? He said He would build His church. He didn't promise to build apple or Microsoft, or Toyota, or Ford Motor Company, or Chevrolet, or General Electric, or whatever. He did promise to build his church. Luke is careful to tell us that the growth of the church, as you read through the book of Acts, the growth of the church was not just simply on account of human effort. But what's Luke say about the growth of the church? Yes, the Lord added to his church daily those who were being saved. So the origin and the growth of the church is of the Lord. Folks, the church should therefore be important to any follower of Christ because the church is important to Christ himself. I like one thing that Mark Dever says. He says that Christian proclamation makes the gospel audible and the church makes the gospel visible. Christian proclamation makes the gospel audible. The church makes the gospel visible. Now, the word uh, in the New Testament and in, in Scripture, the, the Hebrew is different. It's kahal, Q, the way we would bring it over into English, Q-A-H-A-L. But in the, in the uh, Koine Greek... Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Now, it's true this word sometimes in the New Testament could at times refer to any assembly. Any assembly. 
Not just a religious assembly, but any assembly. Uh, an example of that would be in Acts chapter 19, the, the Ephesians town clerk. When, when the Ephesians town clerk is trying to calm the mob down and quiet down a potential riot, he said, if there is anything further that you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal ecclesia. Now, five, five of 114 uses of ecclesia refer to a guild. What do I mean by a guild? A craft, kind of like what we might say today, what, a union, right? So five of 114 uses of ecclesia... Uh, refer to a guild. And I'll, I'll give you some occurrences of that if you're taking notes. Acts 19.32. Acts 19.39. And Acts 19.41. Now in Acts 7.38. In Acts 7.38. This word ecclesia is used to. To refer to a general gathering. In Acts 7, it would be referring to, to uh, Israel. And it's interesting the, the description of Israel that uh, is given in Acts 7.38. Israel is described as the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness. Speaking of what? The 40 years, right? After leaving Egypt, the church in the wilderness. In Matthew 18, 17, it is used to refer to a Jewish synagogue. Now, other than those cases, the remaining cases of the 114 uses of this in the New Testament are used to refer to what we would think of as the church. So the majority of the cases of this are used in the New Testament to refer uh, to a gathering of Christian believers. Uh, and it's, it's used in two ways. Two ways. Can anybody think of the two ways ecclesia is used when referring to a Christian assembly? Okay. Keep going with that. What? Very good. Universal. The universal church. Who, what's the universal church? All, all believers of all time. All believers of all time. By the way, let me, let me clarify something because sometimes Baptists and other groups are highly offended by something in the Apostles' Creed. If you've ever been a part of a tradition that is part of worship, recites the Apostles' Creed, we, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, they'll say, Pastor, we're not Catholic, we're Baptist. <laughs> it's little say. 
the word Catholic, little c, is used to mean what? Just simply universal. It's not talking about Roman Catholicism at all. But anyway, that's, that's one way. When it's clearly referring to Christian assemblies, uh, ecclesia, there's one sense is talking about the church, the universal church. All believers of all ages. Okay? Then we should, in your mind, have answered the question then, how's the second main way that this word is used when referring to? to a Christian body of believers. A local, a local assembly. A church in its local expression. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, so forth and so on. When you talk about ecclesia... What's the emphasis on in the New Testament when we, when, we, when we talk about this group of people? Is, you know, right now we are seated in a church. You're seated on pews in a physical room. So where am I going with this? The emphasis in the New Testament on ecclesia is on what? People, gathering of believers, people. The emphasis is not bricks and mortar, but people. Now, people need a place to meet. But the emphasis, nonetheless, is on people, not the building itself. The church is invisible and yet visible. What do I mean by that? In its true spiritual reality, as the fellowship of all genuine believers, the church is invisible. Invisible. Yes. We can see those outwardly, attend the church and we can see outward evidences of inward spiritual change but but we can't actually see people's hearts and view their spiritual state only God can do that that's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 the Lord knows those who are his the Lord knows those who are his the invisible church is the church As God sees it, the visible church is the church as you and I see it. Paul writes his epistles to the visible church in each community. Just like I was saying a moment ago, the church at Ephesus, Philippi, so forth and so on. Now, the visible church throughout the world will always include some unbelievers. And individual congregations will usually include some unbelievers because we can't see hearts the way God does. St. Augustine 
said of the visible church, he said, many sheep are without and many wolves are within. Many sheep are without and many wolves are within. Jesus said the same thing, folks. Read Matthew's gospel, what he said about sheep and wolves. And remember what Jesus said in his parables about wheat and tares. And Jesus made the point, wherever there's a gathering of God's people and it's the wheat, who did Jesus say would also be growing up among them? Tares. And you remember what the disciples said? Lord, you want us to go try to root them out? And he said, no, because you don't know hearts. As you're trying to root out the tares, you might inadvertently root out wheat too. So what he say, do, let both grow together until the end of the age. And at the judgment, the Lord will send his angels and they will do the separation. But in the, in the visible church, it's, it's pointed out in Scripture, sheep and goats are gathered together. Uh, so the point there is, it, it shouldn't surprise Christians to learn uh, that there will be unbelievers within a congregation. You, first of all, you'd want unbelievers who know they're unbelievers because you want to evangelize. But it shouldn't surprise people to learn that there will be unbelievers. Wherever God's people are gathered, wherever the wheat are, there'll be tares. Now, Dr. Dever believes that one of the reasons that more people are not interested in the church or the doctrine of the church is because the church is not necessary for salvation. Now, as pointed out, I, I could carry you to different places in the New Testament that it ought to be the heartbeat of any genuine believer to want to be a part of a church. If, if somebody professes to know Christ, yet doesn't care about being a part of the church, and they persist in that state, you'd really have to wonder if they're a believer to begin with. But, in the purest sense, we could say that the church is not necessary for salvation. Uh, Cyprian of Carthage, who was a bishop in Carthage from uh, 200 to 258 A.D., he said, and, and now we wouldn't agree with him fully, but he said, no one can have God as his father who doesn't also have the church as his mother. No one can have God as his father, who doesn't also have the church as his mother. So even though we don't agree with that fully, we do appreciate what Cyprian was trying to say. What was he trying to say? The 
It's, it's the vessel God's using. So somebody who claims to know God ought to want to be a part of his church. The church is the body of Christ purchased with his blood. The church is a body of believers purchased with his blood. Christ purchased the church with his blood. So again, it ought to be unthinkable uh, for somebody who is a genuine believer to not want to immediately associate with the group of Christians where he or she could worship God with them and serve God with them. The church is God's instrument in bringing the gospel to the nations. God's instrument in bringing the gospel to the nations. Now, let's move on to talk about In the Bible, there are various metaphors given to describe the church. What would some of these be? The bride of Christ. Okay, I heard the body of Christ. Okay. Certainly we, we are to have convictions that would be pleasing and honoring to the Lord. How about how about this one? God's house. God's house. Hebrews 3 verse 3 and also verse 6. Hebrews 3:3 3, 3 and 3:6. 3, Scripture says, "We are his house." And Christ is viewed as the builder of the house. Also, uh, the temple of Christ. Any more that you can think of? There's one more. Uh, let me ask and give you a hint. I'll just, rather than trying to give you a hint, a family. A family. The family of God. We're referred to as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we call on God as our Father, household of faith, God's house. Mm -hmm. So God's family, God's house, the temple of Christ, the body of Christ, 
the bride of Christ. All of those are different metaphors that are used in the New Testament to give a snapshot of what the church is. Now, I don't think what we can do, nor do we want to do it, we, sh- we shouldn't want to reduce it down to just one metaphor. Because there's a richness we gain by looking at all of these together, right? Because each metaphor tells us something about the church, the makeup and the function of the church. And so we, we need all of these images. They all teach us something about Christ's church. Now, let's move on thirdly to talk about... The purpose. This board's not erasing very well, is it? Needs cleaning. If you were to think in in broad strokes about New Testament purposes of the church. What would some of those be? Equipping, okay. Equipping, we could say discipling, okay. What else? Excuse me? Encouraging, that would certainly be a part of that, wouldn't it? And that would also be a part of another one that will... Think think of five functions of the church that we very clearly see in the New Testament. Okay, that would be a part of this. Okay, the Great Commission... Uh, here again, that'd be a part of this, but we could add to that. Evangelism and missions. Okay. Yes. Okay. Worship. Worship, evangelism and missions, equipping, discipling. Okay. Okay. Uh, So we could say what you're talking about. We could put under the category of ministry. And somebody mentioned encouraging and showing love and mercy. All that would come under here, right? So ministry, worship, evangelism, missions, equipping, discipling. What's the one other big one we see in the book of Acts? Fellowship. Fellowship. 
when people talk about the main purposes of the church, they're generally talking about those five things. Worship, evangelism missions, equipping, discipling, ministry, and fellowship. Uh, sir, because church discipline is the, the intent of it is to be redemptive, to bring somebody back in. I think you could, you could tag it either under equipping or ministry, either one. So, sure, there's, there's lots of things that we could tag under each of these. But when we think of the five main functions of the church in seen, as seen in the book of Acts... It's these right here. Uh, so if, if we are being faithful to the Lord and a balanced ministry, we ought to be doing all of these. Right? We ought to be doing all of them. Okay, uh, Dr. Wayne Gruden, he, he lists 12 signs and Mark Dever talks about nine marks or signs. That's where his whole ministry gets his name from. S- signs or marks of a, of a pure church. And when I write these down, you're going you're gonna to see how these, some of these could, could fit underneath this. Uh, Wayne Gruden in his systematic theology talks about the right preaching. Of God's Word, the proper use of ordinances, the right use of church. Discipline, genuine worship. Now, let me talk about genuine worship a moment because uh, two different principles are used in in worship. A lot of times, the and and admittedly, I'm I'm. Painting with a very broad brush, what I'm about to say. But maybe some of the liberal churches that don't have a high view of the inspiration of Scripture. They might use what is referred to as the normative principle in worship. The normative principle in worship says... 
we will allow anything in worship that is not strictly forbidden by Scripture. Because of that, sometimes you see a lot of nonsense in worship. And then generally speaking, those churches that have a high view of Scripture will use or try to use what is referred to as the regulative principle. Regulative principle. The regulative principle says we will do those things in Scripture that are specifically prescribed in the New Testament for worship. When you read Paul's Corinthian correspondence, when you read the pastorals, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and what Paul talks about that a church body is to do when they gather for worship, what's he say? And Dr. Ligon Duncan president of Reform Seminary says it this way. We ought to pray the Word. We ought to read the Word. We ought to sing the Word. We ought to preach the Word. And we ought to see the Word. What would see in the Word be? The ordinances. But Paul specifically talks about when churches gather for worship, let there be prayer, let there be scripture reading, let there be the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, let there be the preaching of the word, and let there be the ordinances. Those are, those are the things Paul talks about in writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He talks about that also in First and Second Timothy and Titus. So the regulative principle says we're going we're gonna to let the New Testament itself tell us what should be in worship. So that's... That's two different principles you'll see churches, whether they know what they're doing or not, that's two principles that churches will do as they're planning services. Some will say, we'll do anything as long as we don't think it's wrong or sinful. And others that say, no, we'll do that which the New Testament prescribes, which I think is the right standard to use. Uh, Genuine worship, effective prayer. Here again, this is Wayne Gruden in his systematic theology book. And then he talks about effective witness, effective Fellowship, biblical
church government. Spiritual power in ministry. Personal holiness of members, care for poor, sick, and the uh, dying. And then, love for Christ. So Gruden says, whatever else you say, you you ought to at least see these 12 things in a true church. Uh, Let me speak. Spin this around. Dever uh, talks about the nine marks, nine marks of a true church. Expositional preaching. What's he mean by that? Preaching the Bible like it's written. Chapter by chapter, book by book. That's how God gave us. If we're going to honor the Lord's Word the way He wrote it, that's how we preach it. The great preaching professor Stephen Olford said, uh, preach one topical sermon per year. And then immediately go out and repent. (laughs) But expositional preaching. Biblical theology. Right understanding of the gospel biblical understanding of conversion Biblical understanding of evangelism. Biblical understanding 
of church. Membership. Biblical church discipline. Come over here. Biblical church leadership. It is the what now? He, uh, now, he, he has another book other than this one. He'll mention these, some of these things in here, but he really lays them out well. He has one called The Nine Marks of the Church. You got that one, okay? And in that book, he has a chapter on, on each of these. Now, if you, some of you may have this, I don't know, Daniel Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary, has a, I've shown it to you before, has a thick volume out called A Theology for the Church. And it's, it's a volume in systematic theology, okay? And each chapter, he will have a different writer do each chapter. He's the editor of it. But in that one, that's one of our Southern Baptist volumes of systematic theology. It's called A Theology for the Church is the title of it. It's probably 1,800 pages. A Theology for the Church edited by Daniel Aiken. Now the chapter in there on the church, he got, he and the publisher's got Dr. Dever to do the chapter on the church in there. So if you have that theological volume, uh, you, you don't even need this book because most of, most of what's in here is also going to be in that chapter. So it might be kind of redundant. But uh, so expositional preaching, biblical theology, right understanding of the gospel, Biblical understanding of conversion, biblical understanding of evangelism, biblical understanding of the church, of, of church membership rather, church discipline, uh, concern for discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. <laughs> and it just dawned on me. I'm sorry, folks. Somebody should have said something. I have, uh, I have not been using this at all. <laughs> Basically, I've said this, but 
I had all this PowerPoint on and, and got busy teaching. Didn't even, didn't even think about any of this. Oh, well. Okay, any, any question? Where, where we're going to also be heading from here is we're going to be talking about uh, church government. Uh, church government falls under three main forms. There's a fourth. You just don't see the fourth very much. What would the three forms be? One would be the Episcopal system. Then there would be the what? Presbyterian system. And then the third would be congregational. And then those are the three main ones. Most churches fall under one of those three. Episcopal, Presbyterian, or congregational. The fourth is no government. And who would that be? That'd be groups like the Quakers, who they'll come together and just sit quietly before the Lord. There won't be any structure or church officers necessarily. They'll just sit quietly until they believe God moves one of them to get up and say, I'd like to lead us in prayer. Then somebody else gets up and says, I feel led to get up and lead us in a song. Somebody else gets up and says, God's put on my heart a message for today. Um, and that's how they do church. Plymouth Brethren, um, Quakers, non-church government group. You don't find many of those. But Episcopal, uh, and that's, that's not just the Episcopals, that's them. But the Roman Catholics, Episcopal, Anglican, those are some of the groups fall under that system, then the Presbyterian and Congregational. Those are the main forms of church government. So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about ordinances of the church. We're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about how different groups, church groups, look at those two differently. Uh, how they look, how different denominations look differently at the Lord's Supper and baptism. Then we're going to talk about church leadership. What's the Bible say about leadership? Specifically, what's it say? Because that matter is addressed specifically. Not in generalities, but specifically. And then we're going to talk about the mission of the church. So that's, that's just some areas where we're initially going. Uh, maybe we should stop here tonight kind of at a breaking point. The church government section is probably a 20-minute session all in and of itself. And I'm supposed to, be, I'm supposed to let you all out of here in the next 5 to 10 minutes. So I wouldn't even get through that section if I get started. Any questions or comments about anything thus far tonight? And now that I have told you all this, if you'll, those, what they're passing out uh, is the identical thing. So if you'll get people on this side of the church, you'll get people on this side of the church. That's just a handout for you to take home. Yes. I'm sorry? 
Okay. Why? Okay. 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 Good. Well, sort of an introductory session tonight, just setting the table. I hope it's helpful. Uh, I think as we get into talking about some of these other things, um, it's going to be eye-opening. We, for instance, we don't, we don't agree with those who baptize infants. But why do they do that? I think when you understand why they do it, it's not going to be some two-headed monster that you might have grown up thinking it was. Even if we disagree with them, they have some very biblical reasons for doing it and historical reasons. Uh, so we're going to look at things like that and how the Roman Catholics observe the Lord's Supper. What do they believe about that that's so different than us? Because it is very, very different. So we're going we're gonna, to, in coming weeks, we're going to see some of these things. Okay? Any other question or comment about tonight? It? Mm-hmm. Are you going to give us an indication of why the church decided to leave marriage off as one of the ordinances and what the culture determined what marriage was instead of I could. Uh, I had not planned to, but that would be a good thing to cover. Uh, actually, I, I think what you're referring to, too, Referring to, to, referring to also, uh, you know, like Catholics, for instance, we'll talk about the seven sacraments of the church. What's the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance? Why is the different language used? And they, they talk about the sacrament of marriage. Um, so, yeah, I think it might be good to talk about some of those things. Okay. Yes, the Brethren Church is foot washing. And uh, now, also, the Brethren Church is when they baptize, they dunk three times and they dunk forward. They take you underwater in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. One time, a lady coming to us from out of the Brethren Church said, Will you accept? My immersion. I said, yeah, you've been more immersed than we have. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, David Fink, close us in prayer, please, sir.